Hello and welcome back to Classical Music Spotlight with music by and an interview with composer Jennifer Higdon, three-time Grammy winner and one of the most active and frequently performed American composers. As we talk about her new recording with percussion soloists Matthew Strauss and Svet Stoyanov and the Houston Symphony conducted by Robert Spano, and their recording of Duo Duel, as well as Concerto for Orchestra that was composed in 2002 and is one of her most performed works. The music you just heard was the very opening of Duo Duel, really a concerto for two percussionists. Here's a bit more. Let's start with Duo Duel. It was written for or inspired by two people. Right. Svet Stoyanov and Matthew Strauss. Matthew plays in the percussion section of the Houston Symphony. And Svet I've worked with at the University of Miami Frost School. They actually did my percussion concerto quite a few years ago. I think it might have been six or seven, maybe even eight years ago. And I remember Svet said to me after that, he said, have you ever thought about writing for two percussionists. And I just found out last week, they, the two of them just confessed to me that when I went to the Houston Symphony, when they were doing my concerto for orchestra, it sounded like Matt stepped out of the rehearsals and went and called Svet and said, have you ever thought about asking her for a double percussion concerto? I think it's because there's a percussion movement in that concerto for orchestra. So I just found out just kind of how the idea blossomed. And did you work with them directly during the process of writing it? Well, it's an interesting question because I actually started the piece about three weeks before the COVID lockdown. An amazing coincidence. I mean, basically, I started the piece figuring I would send them music. And I've written quite a bit of percussion music. So I knew both players and I, I kind of had an idea what I was going to do. We had a lot of discussions before I began. But then the lockdown happened. So if I had questions, I just sent them a PDF, basically. But I spent the first part of the lockdown just working on this piece. You know, I figured the music's hard enough. I should get it to the guys early. So were there things about their playing that, that influenced you? There were. First of all, they both could play anything. That was my first realization. One of the things the guys talked to me about, and I thought this was fascinating. They said that violinists often have these gorgeous concertos. And they kind of envied that. They love the melody. Same for piano concertos. So they actually said, can you fashion a percussion concerto for us that would do that? That is very melodically based because people don't normally think of percussion that way. 
I thought, well, yeah, that totally makes sense. And, you know, it kind of makes some of my decision making because I have another percussion concerto that does, in fact, have quite a few drums in it. I thought, well, this would be a great challenge. So they really wanted melodic content. But I decided before I even wrote a note that I was going to write them a killer fast moving cadenza because they're so good. <laughs> Boy, did you. Boy, yeah. I was listening to that again this morning and I just thought, wow, I, I, I need a crash helmet if I was playing that. <laughs> You know, what's really incredible about that cadenza when you actually see it live, they're standing right next to each other at one point and they are in really close proximity. So part of their job is to move in unison together like they're choreographed because their lines overlap so closely that it's very easy for them to hit sticks or run into each other. So it, it took a little bit of practice. Boy, they did it. They're doing it. It sounds amazing. You know, something I noticed about in the concerto, in the duo duel, but also the concerto for orchestra, you write a lot for percussion that's very quiet. It's it's not what people think of usually when they think of percussion. You know, that came about because of a very specific situation with the concerto for orchestra. I knew that Wolfgang Swalish, the music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, who, who had commissioned the work and was going to premiere it. I knew that he wasn't used to a lot of, he wasn't used to actually to any contemporary music. And so he was, he was a little, not so sure about percussion. And he actually had passed along a message to me through the administration saying, go easy on the percussion. Now I work with the Philadelphia Orchestra's percussion section, and a lot of the new music ensembles around here. And I really love those guys. And I thought, well, maybe we can convince Wolfgang Swalish if I write the quietest part of my concerto for orchestra as the percussion part and maybe it would kind of pull them in and show them the magic of percussion i don't i mean it was kind of a silly thing to think but it actually worked it totally oh, worked neat. yeah so I was, I was relieved because that was that's a little roll of the dice when the maestro says oh, go easy on the percussion you're like let's do a whole movement of percussion 
in the liner notes for the concerto for orchestra, which is the other major work on this on this album, you talk about it being composed from the inside out. Start, you started with the middle movement. Is this a normal process? I mean, just starting anywhere? Yeah, you know, for me, I think half the time it actually is. When there are multi-movement works, if I'm really nervous about writing a piece, sometimes the ideas I get, the first initial ideas feel like they belong in the middle, maybe in a slow movement. So mm -hmm. I often go with whatever instinctively pops up in my head. And I think with the concerto for orchestra, so many of the principal players asked me for particular things in their solos. I kept a running grocery list because I lived <laughs> four blocks from the hall. It meant I was running into them all the time. And so I had quite the laundry list that I needed to do to accommodate the request, but I thought, well, what's a better way in a concerto for orchestra to so basically to show off your principal players and then the sections. So that made one of the decisions for me right out of the gate. And I thought, all right, I'll kind of make this the heartbeat, basically the center of the concerto so that the fact is an orchestra is made up with an incredible number of really talented players. Mm -hmm. And why not highlight that? You rarely get to do that except in a concerto for orchestra. So that was that was the thinking. And then I thought, oh, I'll work from the inside out then. It's a sometimes I do it, and sometimes it just comes at the beginning and off you go. It's very unpredictable, I have to admit. So, but I can tell you duo duo was from beginning to end because I knew we were gonna have dueling timpani at the end, and somehow that just seemed like it needed to be at the end and not at the beginning.
the way you use orchestral instruments, and I say this as a former orchestral musician, it's spectacular because it sounds like no matter how hard what you wrote is to play, it sounds like it should be on that instrument. That's good. That's the ultimate compliment. It's what I always hope for. So how does one learn that or is it instinctive? You know, it's a couple of things. I don't know if it's that instinctive. When I was getting my bachelor's degree, I was a performance major. I played flute. So I sat in an orchestra and experienced the sound swirling around me. That's a hard thing to describe to people who haven't been inside an orchestra. But I can remember doing Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe and thinking, holy cow, what power the way Ravel handles the orchestra, the colors, the shifting sound. But also you sometimes realize there's power inside that no one can actually pin down what it is until you're actually looking at a score. But having also played a lot of new music in my early days, I, I had the realization that we have to be very responsible for what we put on the page for our musicians, because it's a lot of work to learn a new piece. So you want to make the instrument sound good, but also challenge them, but keep it interesting for the audience. And really, Raymond, one of the things I've realized through the years is that the players now in orchestras are just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, anyone in an orchestra could, I think, be a soloist in reality in front of that orchestra. So when I write, I often write concertos that have very active orchestra parts. I mean, that duo dual orchestra part is really a workout. But I've also found that the musicians love being given that voice, given power within something like that. And they seem to embrace it, thank goodness. It's also thrilling for the audience because sometimes I think audiences don't realize how much power is in an orchestra. It's a car that will go fast. It's a car that will go slower than anyone can imagine. You can also have a palette of a million different things going on and then pull it down to two voices. And experiencing that and having the musicians to do it is like yeah. a beyond description.
on on this particular recording, you're working with the Houston Symphony and Robert Spano. What was that like? You've got a virtuoso machine there. Holy cow. It was fantastic. Robert Spano and I have known each other since 1985 in a mm -hmm. really strange fluke. He got out of school at Curtis and he got a job with the orchestra there at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I got to know him then. And I feel like we've worked together so much that we it's almost kind of symbiotic. We don't even have to speak. He knows my music really well. He knows how to rehearse it. The minute he goes to ask me a question, I've already marked it in my score. So a lot of times he corrects things that I'm thinking, oh, I've got to adjust that when we go back. But he makes the adjustments. So he's really great with new music. And boy, the Houston Symphony is just phenomenal. They are just, and boy, this recording reveals that. It's such a beautiful recording. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful. I mean, it's a very caffeinated disc. Yeah. <laughs> But it's fun. That's the thing. So you have to be careful you don't get a speeding ticket if you're listening to this. Right. Car. It's a recording that sizzles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you started composing relatively late. It wasn't the first thing you did. Right. So did you always want to do it or... Oh, that's a good question. You know, for me, the truth is I always loved creative things, but I would, I was also, when I was younger, drawing. My dad was a commercial artist, so we had a lot of art in the household, and I made little eight-millimeter movies. I wrote short stories, but I discovered a flute in the attic when I was 15. There was a beginning band method book, and I taught myself to play, and then I joined the marching band in my high school because we didn't really have anything. We didn't have an orchestra or anything. But I remember thinking, wow, this is great. Hanging out with cool people and playing music and audiences getting excited. It really, it was, I got addicted immediately. So, and the late start, you know, it was funny. It was very hard going through school because I was yeah. always taking the remedial classes. I came to classical music late. I grew up on rock and roll, which maybe attests to some of my penchant for toe tapping. I think the thing was, I found it such a great thing, even though I was behind all the way in school, I just kind of like started absorbing as much information as I could about the instruments too. looking at how things interacted when I was playing in band, when I was playing in woodwind quintet, I learned so much, but it was such a fresh experience for me. I was like a, a very hungry sponge kind of soaking it all in. That background, I think helps to explain. You once said your job is to communicate and that people should be able to come to your music without having any knowledge of classical music. And it's, is this part of what brought you that? It is. My dad worked in advertising. He did commercial art, basically, for all kinds mm -hmm. of advertising. But I, he used to take me to all these art happenings in the 60s in Atlanta. And I remember thinking, when I was looking at some of the films, they had strange music playing. I remember thinking, this doesn't work. I was like six, year old, six years old. I'm thinking about this <laughs> at right. a young age to be forming some sort of opinion about what basically came down to experimental art. But you know that those early experiences of also watching a lot of people make art made a real impression on me because my parents never said I couldn't be a composer or I couldn't be a flutist. I couldn't work in the arts because... They said, look, you just have to figure out how to do it. They never said have a plan B. So it never occurred to me that I needed a plan B. And I kind of charged forward somewhat recklessly, but maybe that's the best way to do it when you're young.
So is is commercial versus high art even a valid distinction? I mean, you're talking about the art scene, but also if you look at theater or you look at dance, yeah, it's like it it, it absorbs everything. So I agree. I don't think there is a distinction, and I think one of the things that really points to that. For me, there's never been a barrier because I've always mixed up all of my listening. Um, I And truthfully, going to enough concerts where there's variety there, to me, that's what I think is fantastic. But you got all these young composers who grew up on pop music. I mean, you can't subtract that experience. But I also love bluegrass. I love Alison Krauss. I, there's all kinds of music that I love. I listen to rap. I listen to everything, just everything. So I feel like that all goes into my head, which kind of, figures out when I'm composing, it's got to be in there influencing me in some manner, in some manner. But I think I have the genre lines. I, to me, that makes right. like no sense. And it used to be, you're absolutely right. That used to be, oh, it's high art, it's commercial art. My dad and I used to debate it, but after a while he said, you know, maybe you're right. I was like, wow, my dad said something that was right <laughs> about in art, you know? <laughs> right. So, I mean, that goes to something you once talked about, which is common practice, which you know, if you go back 50 or 75 years, probably had more of a meaning in classical music. But does it have any meaning now? Or is the internet and global sharing and, you know, just everybody listening to everything changed that? I think it does change it because I think people coming up now don't know that those distinctions were there. And I'm also, as an artist, I like having, I having, I like having the limits taken off me. So like when I wrote a, wrote a bluegrass concerto, I could kind of bend the two together. It was a classical bluegrass hybrid. And what an amazing thing to be able to do, because sometimes you bring people into the concert hall who maybe have never, ever had a chance to go to a classical concert. It's one of my favorite things to do is to take people to classical concerts who've never been, to get them tickets right. and a, a concert and talk to them about it. And so, but I also love going to bluegrass concerts. I don't want to say, oh, you're a classical person. You cannot come in here. There's so many things we can take from each art form. And as someone who believes deeply in the value of creating, because I often think, what if most of the world actually did creative activity? Wouldn't this be a better world just in general? Why have the barriers? Why have the lines? Let me just explore it all and take what I can and figure out what works with my voice, but also respect what other people's voices are, because I think that's also legitimate. I mean, I complained as a kid sitting in those early art happenings, but now I see the value of that. And in a way for me, it was valuable because I could decide early, even at the age of six, what didn't work for me, what didn't speak to me, but it did for some people.
I got to say the recording industry is a blessing in more ways than you all may realize because my career really was made not so much from the commissions. The commissions have been extremely important, but getting the music out into the world mm -hmm. is the thing that kind of launched my career on so many different ways. And the radio airplay is important and people's ability just to get a hold of the music. And the orchestras have been better about working with the composers to make sure we can make this happen. It used to be a lot right. harder. But I think for the art to be relevant today, having it in some place where people can access it, especially considering how huge the world is of the internet, how much music we can get our hands on, a label like Naxos is a lifesaver. It in, in many ways, it's like the power cord to the machine. It's amazing. And when I go to concerts, I tell them about this CD and people get excited and they're like, where can I get it? I mean, that's exactly what you want to have happen. We're sharing that's what music's about is sharing. If Beethoven and right. Mozart could have done recordings, they would have been all over Naxos. So that's that's actually the reality <laughs> of it, you know? I mean, can you imagine how hard it was for those guys to have to, the only time their pieces got heard was when they were putting on the concert or when right. uh, someone like a count was putting it on. Right. I think about, you know, a lot of composers worry about the status of composers now. But if you look, there's some records actually that have the number of performances that Beethoven had and Mozart and Haydn in Vienna, which was like the music capital of the world. They didn't have many performances. Most composers don't know this. I have more right. in one year than they had in the entire 20 years in Vienna. I think, you know, for most of those guys, they heard a piece once or twice and that was it. They were on to the next one. I think Duo Duels had like, we've had four orchestras do it and the Concerto for Orchestra has had at least two or three orchestras do it every year since it premiered in 2002. And thinking about that, because there's 20 years between these two pieces, for me, it's fascinating to hear how I changed as a composer, how I've grown, or at least I hope I've grown. But also just the fact that two pieces like this could be on a CD for comparison and, and poor Beethoven and Mozart, and oh my gosh, Bach. Yeah. never got that opportunity. So it's actually, it's easier to be a composer now. I think a lot of people don't realize that.
You have been listening to an interview with Jennifer Higdon and music from her latest Naxos release featuring Duo Duel with percussionists Matthew Strauss and Svet Stoyanov, as well as her concerto for orchestra, all with the Houston Symphony conducted by Robert Spano. A wonderful recording in every which way, now available both digitally and physically. Naxos catalog number 8.559913. To go out, here is the very ending of Concerta for Orchestra. I'm Raymond Bechet. Thanks for joining me. So long for now. <laughs>